Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Juliette Kayem about her new book, Security Mom, An Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home. It was recorded on Tuesday, April 26, 2016. And tonight, or this afternoon, we'd like to welcome my friend Juliette Kayem, uh, who we're going to be talking about her book, Security Mom. Um, Juliette, I'm sure most of you know, she was a senior official in the Department of Homeland Security in the first term of the Obama administration. Before that, she was the first director of Homeland Security, state director of Homeland Security in Massachusetts. She's done lots of other things. She's a commentator on CNN. She's been a, a columnist for the Boston Globe. She's a counterterrorism expert. And she's a mom, a security mom. And the book is really an extraordinary combination of personal memoir and history of um, homeland security and how to think about homeland security and reflection and really reflection upon the concept of resilience, which is a core concept. So, Juliet, I'm going to let you start off. I've got a lot of questions, so why don't you just tell okay, us about the book? Great. Uh, thank you, Jack and Paige, for helping to set this up and so many people in the room. So very grateful uh, that you all are here on a, on a beautiful day um, when outside might be distracting. Uh, I want to um, talk about the book uh, and sort of begin with uh, how, how does someone in Homeland Security end up writing a memoir, which was the hardest part. Uh, I had been in counterterrorism and homeland security for close to 20 years when I left government. I had started off on the National Commission on Terrorism uh, in 98 um, and uh, ended my stint uh, with uh, President Obama. Uh, in that same time period, I had three kids uh, who are now 14, 12, and 9. Um, the, and I had changed over the course of that time period. I had come to believe uh, that a nation that was so focused on stopping bad things from happening uh, was doomed to failure, if that was our metric, uh, and uh, was inadequately preparing the American public for what we all know uh, to be true, which is stuff happens. Uh, that's the theme of life, right? That, uh, and that a nation like ours might be judged better, not by whether we can stop all bad things from happening, but how we prepare, respond, uh, for the events that we can't always protect uh, that, and that will make us ultimately more resilient. And so telling that story, not to absolve government of its responsibilities, but telling the story about uh, you know, minimizing risk, maximizing our defenses as a nation, but also maintaining our spirit, which is ultimately uh, uh, an America that is inherently vulnerable, and that's a good thing, right? The flow of people and goods and ideas that make this nation great also make us vulnerable. And I didn't know how to tell that story, or I, it's a hard story to tell, it's politically difficult to tell. Uh, certainly when you're in the, uh, the national security world, it's, it's, you know, stuff happens isn't exactly your metric. Um, and so uh, uh, the story, how to tell it became clear, and I tell the story in the book when, um, you learn a lot about me in the book, as Jack has made it's a clear. Very, very candid. Yes, book. Um, and uh, uh, which, including that I come from a very large Lebanese family, and so talk a lot about security clearances when you're an Arab American, which is totally fun. And um, <laughs> and uh, I got an email from my cousin Karen. So I have a, a 30 plus first cousins, who um, 
was worried about her daughter, Debbie, uh, and uh, wrote to me an email that had the subject line Al-Qaeda. Uh, and uh, Karen also was my dentist. And the email uh, begins with her concerns about her daughter traveling to New York, like concerns that a lot of parents have, uh, and then ends with, um, uh, you know, should she go to New York? Uh, would you send your kids, right? The, the question that every parent has. Are you still flossing? Um, how about that night guard? And don't forget to tell me about the terrorists. That's her. And I thought, wow, bin Laden and dental work never had gone hand in hand before. But I thought that the email was so illuminating because it really was just tell me what I want, what I should know, and tell me how to process it, and how would you judge it? And this whole world seems super scary and squirrely in the world that we're in. So I decided to tell it as a memoir. And it's a story of uh, not just uh, uh, how Homeland Security works, which is a world that Many of us, many people in counterterrorism don't quite get Homeland Security is like the new kid on the block, um, but also uh, how we might judge it. Right. So um, I really can't emphasize how extraordinary it is the way you weave in the, the personal, the family with the, the, with the governmental perspective. So I want to start off by just, so one theme in the book is how as a mom, you have a certain attitude towards protecting your family and as a government official, in serving in the public, you had another perspective. Often, one theme in the book is how you go back and forth and, and, and how those perspectives mix. How would you compare uh, sort of homeland security in the home with um, homeland security you know, when you're in Massachusetts or in general yeah, as so a public official? Because this is one, one theme in the book, I think. Yeah, so no, it's true. And I, what I try to do in the book is. Um, uh, show the similarities between the two. I keep going back to this, you know, we should all be judged by how well we minimize risk, maximize our defenses, and maintain our spirit. So that, you know, so the phone calls I get now, right, after uh, Belgium and Paris and San Bernardino, and a lot of people in our world get these phone calls, should I go to Europe? Should my kids go to Europe? I'm nervous about this. And I always say to people, look, there's not going to be some white flag, you know, that's, okay, everything's fine now, you know, now we get to travel. It's like, you know, we, we've always lived in a time of risk and vulnerability, even before September 11th. And fortunately, the risks we have now are not existential threats. And we can begin to prepare ourselves and minimize those risks, beginning at home, in our communities, uh, in our states, and then the nation. And I think... Part of why I wanted to explain the apparatus, what I call the Homeland Security apparatus, is I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it, and, and obviously, uh, as you know, criticisms towards the department are sometimes very fair. Uh, but you know, things like FEMA, the much maligned agency which has really redeemed itself since Hurricane Katrina, FEMA only ha has less than 3,000 employees uh, it, across the nation. I mean, so this idea of some national Calgary that's going to come to the rescue, just, you, you know, it's supporting our local first responders and preparing our homes and communicating about risk, which we do every day. Right. In our families. In our families. And, and one of the themes of the book, and it's a great theme, is, you know, take reasonable precautions, yeah. don't overreact, and then when bad things happen, as they inevitably do, deal with right. it, basically. So the, the big theme of the book, the intellectual theme of the book, is the importance of resiliency. Any, any person familiar with counterterrorism thinking, especially in the cyber context, but not just in cyber, in, in homeland security and national security generally, 
understands the importance of that concept. But, and yet, for this country, it's very, very hard. We don't seem to be a very resilient nation when it comes to terrorist threats. Why is that, and what are your prescriptions? I mean, how, how can we get better at that? Yeah, so we have a tendency to think that resiliency is a mood, and where I'm from in Boston, you know, um, uh, some of you know I ran for office. I'll never run for office again after I say this. I hate the term Boston Strong, which came out of the Boston Marathon, because it gives people a sense that, oh, we did, um, we did so great because of our Irish stock, you know, or the British during World War II and keep calm, carry on this. All of those things are mythology. Actually, resiliency is, is, is tied to response um, and, and recovery, our investments in um, our own preparedness. And they are either, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, the police doing, you know, responding um, after the Boston Marathon, a public health apparatus that was able to pivot at a moment's notice and, you know, go from dealing with dehydration to essentially a lot of amputees, uh, an important part coming out of the Boston Marathon. Um, and uh, you learn from the book I had overseen for the state, the Boston Marathon uh, planning. Uh, I'm out of state government when the time the Boston Marathon attack happens. Um, but the brothers, they're not brothers, went to, lived in our neighborhood and one of them went to my kid's school. Uh, he had graduated several years earlier. So there is a tie to it. And one of the things coming out of the Boston Marathon was um, the Boston police uh, practice uh, and investment in the Boston police in focusing on family unification. Uh, those of you, I see people from FEMA here, um, uh, in a crisis, if you can get people with their family right, either because they planned it or you helped them do it, uh, you're 90% you're of the way there. And so, you know, within an hour, 20,000 runners, a lot of them without iPhones, are, are reunited with their family. So I think resiliency is not, it's not a mood. Um, it's, it's investments in training and exercising the capacity to pivot. And as, imp as importantly, um, um, a... Uh, rigorous commitment to lessons learned because it will stuff will happen again that's the thing it's like there's no finish line where oh we're at peace and and, and there's daisies and unicorns like if we can learn from the mistakes uh, and the preparations then we will be prepared for the next thing so I think that that's clearly true um, but it's easier said than <laughs> yes. done and it's easier said than done both at the government level and at the private level um, I just think about the reaction so you talk about the underwear bomber yeah. at Christmas of 2009, I think yeah. it was, in the book. And, um, and you have, I think it's fair to say you have a qualified defense of, mm -hmm. of, of Janet Napolitano's, yeah. uh, the system worked. Mm -hmm. um, and in some sense, the system did work, but it was politically, it was not, right. not, a, not a great thing to say. Um, in Charlie Savage's book, we had Charlie here several months ago, he frames his whole... Um, book around that episode because he said that was the moment this is the all this was the failed bombing in Christmas 2009 over Detroit and that Charlie paints as uh, basically the wake-up call for the Obama administration we need to be tougher on a, along a range of issues in counterterrorism um, now President Obama is a cool cat when it comes to not overreacting I think he, he's set that example many times some people think he doesn't overreact enough he doesn't react enough yeah. But, so that's an example, and, and, but the point is, is that even with a leadership that was trying to stay cool and calm, there was an upswell of overreaction among the people. It got politicized by Republicans, 
And I don't see us making much progress. And that was a failed attack. Right. Um, I don't see us making much progress as a nation in trying to think perhaps more level-headedly about basically what you talk about in the book, about not overreacting to the inevitable attacks. Or, as you say also, it's not just about counterterrorism, it's about natural disasters and the like. That, yeah. So how, so are we making progress? Am I wrong about I, that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, part of this is maybe, you know, one book at a time, people, you know, sort of get prepared for, uh, uh, you know, the, the disruptions that will happen in our society. I mean, I constantly am saying, you know, there's no security apparatus, no matter what anyone's telling you or anyone on the campaign trail, there's no security apparatus that's going to stop the next 24-year-old guy to converting to Islam, getting radicalized online, having easy access to guns, and finding a soft target. You tell me the security apparatus is going to stop that every single time, um, and um, you wouldn't want to live in that you wouldn't society. want to live in that society right. and in fact you know part of so so the the alternative or sort of understanding that maybe will help people brace for uh, what inevitably will happen and I don't mean that as fatalistic I just mean it as as a descriptive matter there's going to be the cyber attacks you know Zika will be here no shock it's already here like let's not lose our heads I don't know how we um, uh, you know, how we get out of those swings, um, you know, some of it is just trying to have more voices out there that sort of are, are preparing people for uh, something happen. And I, you know, on this sort of panic about uh, after um, uh, the December 25th attack or, or you know, I, I do worry that there'll be a low grade attack. You know, it doesn't have to be many fatalities between now and the end of this term of which this president's legacy will be judged by that. And it will also be used in a way to suggest that um, the one thing, right, the one thing that America has done to be more safe and secure, which is the, you know, acclimation, integration, elevation of Arabs and Muslims in this country as compared to Europe, like myself, um, uh, to, that has, uh, uh, you know, ensure that we don't have sort of an internal threat like Europe does, I do worry that we're going to turn an ugly page after that. It, it's possible. Yeah. And certainly, it certainly seems in the air impossible. Yeah. So you talk a lot in the book about overreacting or underreacting yeah. to threats, and it seems to me like, I think yeah. you agree, kind of an impossible problem from the ex-ante perspective to know if you're taking the optimal yeah. precautions. You talk about, I think, your first crisis at, uh, in the state level in the Department of Homeland Security was the snowstorm. Yes. There was this bit, and you were trying to figure out whether to yeah. make it an emergency, and you had these dueling perspectives of the Homeland Security official who thought he had to keep things safe, but also the mom who was going to be struggling when the kids were home from school. Right. Uh, it is, I will say, just to interrupt, you, you think, oh, counterterrorism, so, like, powerful, like, Literally, the capacity to call a snow day or not is the single most powerful tool anyone ever has in government. We're always hoping against yeah. one of oh, yeah, our no, house. That, yeah. That's when the, 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 you know, yeah. the, the, the kids are refreshing the page to hopefully it switches and the parents are like. But so that was that first big decision and you were on board ultimately, for, but, but the snowstorm never came. Right. And you talked about the H1N1 crisis, which you dealt with really well, and it, and it never materialized. And you talked both times about, well, did we overreact? It's really impossible to know from the ex-ante perspective. So how do you, I, I think that there's no answer to this question except judgment. How do, you, how do you figure out whether you need to take that extra margin of precaution or whether that extra margin of precaution is not cost justified? Well, is there a general formula? Yeah, well, as I described in the snowstorm, 
um, uh, uh, chapter, which was really, uh, you know, part of the personal side is this internal wrestling match that I'm having with myself about, you know, the decision to close or not. Um, and uh, uh, is you, you can, uh, history provides a guide. So at least with the snowstorm, and then I'll get to H1N1. So what was guiding us at that stage um, was the knowledge that, uh, and people um, uh, sort of know this, but it's just worth saying, people don't die from hurricanes or snowstorms. They die from doing stupid things or being negligent during snowstorms or hurricanes. I mean, if you look at, or, or complete negligence as, as um, Hurricane Katrina showed. I mean, most of the people that died during Hurricane Katrina was after the hurricane. And so um, what we knew to be true is that in a blizzard about 18 years before in Massachusetts, um, the failure to call a snow day that had come in during um, uh, uh, sort of tra you know, traffic time, during the rush hour, um, 90 people died during that snowstorm. Right. Yeah. Not because of snow, but because their cars broke down and they died of carbon monoxide poisoning. So you're, you're factoring in that knowledge and saying, well, the decision to overreact, which does have commercial implications, so you can't do it very often, and then people right. lose confidence, was based on a history that right. if we get that wrong, um, that's how people die. On H1N1, and this is the challenge I describe in the book, the, the, the metric in Homeland Security in particular, this is true in counterterrorism or, or, or anything, is um, the standard of success is often fewer people died, fewer people got sick. Um, you look at the Boston Marathon, only three, you know, we, we say things like only three people died. Well, not for those three people, but obviously 400 people who went to hospitals did not die. Um, uh, you know, the BP oil spill, which I had a major role, uh, less oil hit shore. Well, those are hard things to sell, yeah. right? And they are hard things for a president to say. And I, I say, honestly, in the book, I think if we failed in the BP oil spill, so there's, you know, I, there's, there's the spill. But we had created a narrative yep. for the president, which he was, which he eventually got hurt on, which was we were working so hard, um, and so the American public believed if oil hit shore, that was failure, and if it didn't hit shore, that was successful. Anyone who's ever seen salad dressing okay. knows that it's very hard to get oil and water out. So the, the measure of success was essentially less oil hit shore. Uh, because of our effort. That's a really hard thing to and say. And this is an important point of the book, is that setting that baseline of expectations and trying to describe what the counterfactual world in which you didn't succeed yeah. to the extent you did is hugely important in managing the reaction to the yeah. crisis. And I think like H1N1 just, uh, you know, we didn't have a vaccine, so there's a manufacturing point. It was, as I said, it was a very different kind of uh, fear because it was uh, actually, people forget this, it was sort of bringing down healthy kids. Most flu seasons, yeah. um, it's the infirm and elderly or unhealthy kids with preconditions. This one was, was scaring us. It was also in Mexico um, as compared to Asia where SARS and all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, we, we felt like we had time when it's in Asia. And, um, you know, you manufacture, uh, uh, you, you, uh, you create a vaccine in bulk, you deliver it. And the challenge uh, for federal government, let alone state and local, is uh, what we call the last mile, which is how do you get it into the arm of a child? And that's, to me, that you, we had fewer deaths 
um, than what was anticipated. How do you, you, you don't do a victory lap for that? Because still, every flu season, 24,000 people right. die. So you talk about in the book another challenge is that once a, once a crisis hits, precautions are put in place, and then they, it, it's hard to unwind once they're put in place. You call this the cooling down problem, and you use the example of the nuclear reactor in Massachusetts, which was, which was your first big test as, as Homeland Security Director there. Can you tell us the story and explain yeah. the general problem? And, it's, and how do you overcome? This is the problem, basically. I'll just tip it off. The problem of when a terrible event happens uh, and precautions are put in place in the emergency, it's, they tend to persist. And we tend not to revisit whether those precautions are cost effective two, three, five years later. So talk about that example. Yeah, and it, or it's the, the emergency laws in Britain that still yeah. exist after attacks. Or know, frankly, emergency laws in this here, country yeah. that, that go way back. And, 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 and outside of the law stuff in terms of the apparatus, so you know, 9-11 happened, Massachusetts, like many states, uh, has a nuclear, we only had one nuclear facility of two others that impact um, uh, the, the zone of concern fell into Massachusetts. And so, um, uh, Jane Swift, who was an acting governor at the time, was um, uh, deployed, as every governor did, the National Guard on September 20th to the nuclear facility. Now, anyone in counterterrorism or homeland security, we don't, you don't worry as much about nuclear facilities. Terrorists do want soft targets. They want, you know, sort of large. It'd be hard to do something significant at a nuclear facility. Uh, but the National Guard provided uh, a sense of relief, uh, and they were put in as an emergency measure. Deval Patrick's team comes in, as everyone knows, in January of 2007, and they're still there. 20 guys and gals of National Guard. And um, we, and so this is the ratchet up problem. And so we were committed to ratcheting down. One is, Patrick's a very progressive governor. The other is, was time, it was, it was, a, uh, it was money, um, it was time, it was resources for uh, overextended National Guard. Uh, and it took us, right? And no one believed that the Guard had any security function um, uh, anymore. It still took us over a year to uh, what we called the drawdown because the expectations of the security apparatus were so ingrained in the community uh, that we had to have community meetings and we had to talk to the state legislatures. It was done, and I will tell you, we were the first state to uh, take back our National Guard uh, from these nuclear facilities, and then every other state followed us. Like All of a sudden, it was like an all-clear. And you know, if you work with the community, we had the, as I say later on, we had the ratchet up problem um, when the Obama administration came in. Uh, look, we were the first Democrats in a department that had been so aligned with the Bush administration. So the politics were funny, but what we had in, in Chertoff was an amazing uh, uh, person to lead a transition to a new administration. And he, what he did was, uh, and, and Tom Ridge, the secretary before him, is they said to us, that color code system has to go, right? It's, it's no longer working. And, and Secretary Chertoff had basically killed the color code system by attrition. Most of you remember this is the red, blue, green, hazy, whatever. And he had killed it by attrition. It hadn't been used, but it was still out there and still being mocked and undermined the department. We had the support of two Republican secretaries of uh, Homeland Security. We had every comedian on our side. Um, and it still took us 18 months or 19 months to get a new system. And the reason why was it had so ingrained itself into every 
apparatus. Local fire departments were, their, their pay structure was aligned with color code systems. You know, did they get overtime? Uh, the Coast Guard had an entire maritime security apparatus aligned with the color code. So that's how ingrained these things get. And it takes a long time um, and a lot of political backing. And um, there's no incentive for you to do it. I mean, because if you, anything you, any margin you pull back on, you don't know for 100% certain something terrible is not going to happen as a result. So you don't really, you have a political disincentive to do it. So, and I think this is why it doesn't happen as often as it should. So why did you make that an issue item right when you, that was one of the first things you focused and on. For the nuclear? Yeah, for I the think nuclear. Part of it was we were getting a lot of pressure from the National Guard, which was under a lot of stress at the time because of the deployments. And I think for Governor Patrick, I'm not going to speak for him, but at least the mandate we got was just sort of doing a rethink about what it was that was homeland security in particular in a progressive state like massachusetts and you know i talk about uh, in the book you know there's a we talk about progressive federalism in law school right that the states are laboratories and why can't that also be true for safety and security uh so long as constitutional rights are protected and so part of what governor patrick did and you know i was just the vehicle you know was really challenge a lot of the immigration issues that were going on, there were a lot of raids going on at the time, just to maybe create a different way of thinking about homeland security. But, you know, I can't say that, I mean, for Democrats, homeland security, I mean, not maybe for Republicans too, but for Democrats, like we're like, you know, this was like, you know, Deval Patrick Hope, you know, Barack Obama Hope, and we're like the doom and gloom people, like right. we're like unloved and unwanted. Right. Um, so, so this true. is... So this is the Hoover Institution. I know. And, and oh, so, good, you're going to give me my creds now. No, yeah, so, is I, so the book has some remarkably, I think, conservative commitments and lessons in it. So you say one theme of the books is that citizens are responsible for their own safety. Relatedly, don't expect, you say this over and over again, don't expect the government to take care of you. Yeah. And another big theme is really excessive, wild, theatrical overspending on homeland security. So those sound like core conservative tenets to me. The government is not going to take care of you. You have to take care yeah. of yourself. We should reduce the size of government. So why is this a progressive or um, platform? How does this... Is this the standard view in the Democratic Party? Is this the standard view among... I don't know if you consider yourself a progressive. It sounds like a conservative agenda, but now that I say it, it's not an agenda that many conservatives, even though they embrace it in other yeah. context, contexts, that they necessarily... So what are the politics of that, I guess, I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, it, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a hard one. I mean, I do consider myself a progressive, but I'm also every Republican's favorite Democrat. You know? and so, <laughs> Certainly my favorite uh, yeah, Democrat. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, and actually, I should say an aside, when, we, uh, when David, my husband, and I were heading down to D.C. when we were both given jobs in the Obama administration, um, uh, you, Jack, who had worked uh, in the previous administration, uh, you sort of gave us a hint of how much had changed after 9-11, that you just had no idea how much stress um, uh, uh, being in jobs like this was. And I think it, it probably didn't prepare us enough, because I do talk about the stresses yeah. on a family for both of us being in uh, jobs like that. Look, I mean, in other ways, um, 
uh, I view it as very progressive because it's very family and community oriented as well. It is about empowering our uh, lo localities and our and our homes and our first responders in some ways. And so, um, but it, it look it, it does have a theme of um, that the social contract works both ways. And I think uh, this idea that. Uh, you know, the Calvary's gonna arrive as a mythology or that we don't have responsibilities uh, for ourselves uh, to be engaged in the homeland security enterprise is, uh, um, is, is the wrong way to go. I can be, you know, the, the part of the book where I'm viewed as being um, doctrinaire as I'm sort of, um, not, I, I don't have my, you know, normal progressive wishy-washiness about vaccinations. I'm like, you know, hardcore about vaccinating kids because I do think that minimizes risk. So it's, maybe it's all over the place, but maybe that's the, the in terms of the politics. But part of it is, I think, because I think across the board, ideologically, I think if people are honest with themselves, they can, they, they recognize that uh, uh, our vulnerability is a source of our strength as well. And um, that is also true, at, that's true at home and in the homeland, that, that you, you want your kids to um, uh, be part of a world uh, that is engaging. And yeah. uh, though you worry about them every second. Of you every want them moment. to be able to ride their bikes, but you want them to have a helmet yeah, on. That's the, I that's, think it's, a, one that's of the great, it's one of the great themes of the book. Um, so I want to wind up by asking you about um, so moving to, to a Washington focus. Mm. So you worked in the Department of Homeland Security in its, what, sixth or seventh year. It was still yeah. relatively young. You were the, in the first Democratic administration in DHS. So can you give us your, I don't know if this is, you're going to be happy about this question, but can you give us your assessment of DHS or the, what has it done well on okay. and what is it still not doing so yeah. well on? It's just an impossible organization. It's impossible. Maybe you can start by describing what an impossible oh, set yeah. of tasks it has. And so then just tell us how, how it's done well and not done well. So if you are slightly interested in, in how, what is Homeland Security, I do spend certain yeah. chunks of the book sort of describing in my more casual way um, what is the department, uh, what is FEMA supposed to do, what did it fail to do, what does TSA do, just to Let, let me just say on this point, the book is an extraordinarily great introduction to a kind of really layman's understanding, but it's still technically accurate about how all these institutions yeah. work yeah. and what they are, where they came from, what their history is. Right. So, so the department um, was um, actually it was unwanted by the Bush administration. Remember, he was uh, President Bush was trying to hold on to just Secretary Ridge having an office in the White House, and through the weird politics of that time, it was pushed by Democratic senators uh, to show that they were tougher, that they wanted a department. So the department was sort of unwanted by everyone. It was um, devised by uh, a group that was called the Gang of Five. It was essentially a group of White House staffers who were sort of pulling different pieces. You could just imagine, um, and sort of came out with an announcement without uh, telling uh, other agencies what pieces they were pulling. So Coast Guard, Secret Service, FEMA, uh, which is an independent agency and others. Uh, that wasn't a great way to design a department, nor did it have the basic uh, infrastructure, architecture, plumbing that would make it a thriving department in the front. And in particular, it had no policy office. So if you think, God, they seem like they're fumbling their way through uh, Homeland Security, it might be because no one was setting policy, no office was setting policy. Um, each, uh, and, to, and to give you a hint of why, uh, or the problems with that once there even was a policy office, it's had four secretaries. Each of them has done a new review of the department, right? In hopes that maybe if we review it, something will 
all come out of it. So I'm hopeful about the department. I, um, it's 98% uh, of its employees are actually operational employees. So about 270 people are working the field. So very few political appointees like myself. Um, and uh, I think if I were uh, to, to say, what do I think the department will look like in the future? Uh, it's got to stop fighting with other agencies. They are better at it. So uh, depending on at what time, it, it, you know, the department was in fights with the FBI. It was in fights with the Pentagon. You're not going to win that fight. The Pentagon, you know, it's in. NSA is not going to win NSA, right. So I would get, as I say, I would get the department totally out of intelligence. It should be a consumer of intelligence. I think it should, uh, there's enough intelligence agencies. I don't think it's providing a particular value added to the secretary. Um, we should be a consumer of intelligence in which that, that's guiding our, uh, our planning. Here's where I think it will be in 20, 30, 40 years, um, is it will be the border agency because we are good at that and we don't compete um, with anyone on that. So we have, you know, and that's not just border enforcement, that's immigration policy. Um, I think, just given the way the world is now, um, it will have some role in its sort of state and it will always have a role in state and local preparedness, and that will include cyber. We are the only uh, department that really does get the homeland for obvious reasons, and and we're a big check writing agency. So, like the you know, like you know HHS, you know, we write a lot of checks that make states and localities really happy. And then the third area is it will be a FEMA. Um, on steroids that I think just given um, the superstorms, uh, disasters, uh, and then a focus on resiliency. That this, we are the agency, given the threats we face, that can get, uh, that can drive uh, grant making towards resiliency, the investments in resiliency. Um, I make a big case in the book that the way we do disaster funding today is completely outdated. We have a, the Stafford Act, which um, uh, essentially pays people to get back to normal, right? We think getting back to where you were before is resiliency. It's not. It's getting back to dumb, right? I mean, you know, why are we going to build that school again in Kansas without a basement, you know, because tornadoes are going to come again? Or why are we going to build uh, structures near the beach after Hurricane Sandy? The water's going to rise again. And so um, thinking about using, changing the way we think about disaster management to, to give money um, and resources to build better and more resilient. So those, I think, if I think over time, those lanes, and then you're not competing on every you know, every counterterrorism investigation. I mean, you know, we're just not going to win on those, right. and that's not our value. It's not added. your strength either. Yeah. So let me just say about this book, it is something that the counterterrorism and disaster relief professionals in the room will learn from, and it's also something that the non-experts will learn a ton from. First thing I did when I finished the book was emailed my wife, who is a poet, and is not much interested in what I do. And I said, I finally found a book on counterterrorism and national security that you're going to love and learn a ton from. And I just want to say, Mother's Day is around the corner. It's the perfect gift. Thank Juliet, thank you thank very, you very much. So much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.